Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. book of Revelation uh, in our sermon series. This is because uh, Advent is a time we remember uh, that Christians live torn between two times. We live between the first coming of Christ where we remember uh, his coming, his birth, and all that he did for us in his life, uh, in his death, and his resurrection. And we look forward uh, in hope to his return. And now for many of us, Revelation is a book that is so shrouded in either mystery, confusion, or just plain weirdness that we haven't much bothered with it. But when we ignore it, we ignore what's one of the major resources for Christian life in the present. That in the present, we're meant to pull back on the past by our memory to remember Christ and who he is, and to pull the future into the present by hope, to live shaped in this world and this life with a vision of what is to come and to orient our lives towards it. And so uh, this morning our reading starts uh, in Revelation chapter 19. If you are willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? Our reading today is selections from Revelation 19 and 21. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. Today we are going to look at what I think is one of the most moving visions Uh, in a book of moving visions. You know, Revelation is a symbolic world. It's a a world where the author uses visual images to portray for us spiritual reality. And here I think we see one of the most beautiful and moving visions that we see anywhere in all of the scriptures. It's a vision uh, that if we really see it, if we really allow it to work its way from our ears to our eyes to our imagination to our hearts, has the power to change us in really, really uh, fundamental ways, deep ways. Here the Bible uses uh, some of its richest imagery 
to press home one of its most basic truths. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right? It's a song that is so absolutely basic and simple, a truth so simple that uh, we sing it over the cradles of our children. Uh, it comforts us uh, in our latter days. It's a song uh, that is amazingly profound in its depth and simplicity. Jesus loves me. This I know. And yet for all its simplicity, uh, it is a truth that is very, very hard to grasp. To truly live our lives uh, as though Jesus loved us. Right? The problem with it is in those little words, this I know. Right? We know it uh, in our minds. We know it uh, as something that we ought to believe is true. Yet if it works its way into our hearts, our lives would be so different. If I truly lived my life as though I was the beloved of Jesus, as though Jesus loved me and I knew it in my core, I would be far less given to anxiety, far less thin-skinned when offended um, or when challenged, far less vulnerable to addiction, far less given to despair. It's so hard for us to really believe, to truly live our lives as though Jesus loves us, as though we know at the core of our being that it's true. You know, one of the richest biblical metaphors for God's love, there's, there's nothing, of, of all the metaphors that it uses, there's nothing more central to the story of the Bible than the metaphor that God loves his people like a husband loves his bride. Right? It's more central and in some ways, I think, more moving than the other metaphors used. Right? He not only loves us like a shepherd loves his sheep, he not only loves us like a friend might love his friend, he not only loves us like a king might love his subjects, he doesn't only just love us as a father loves his children, but that he loves us as a husband loves his bride. Right? We all know, uh, don't we, that you cannot pick your family. Right? Amen? Right? You didn't, uh, we do know that we love one another in our families. Right? When the Bible uses familial imagery to talk of God's love, uh, it's drawing on that element of family love that's unshakable, unlosable, unconditional, right? You, you didn't choose your children, but you love them to the death, Amen. right? You didn't choose your brothers and sisters, right? We know that very well. Um, but yet, there, there's at least a part of you that loves them uh, very, very deeply. But the image of romantic love, the image of spousal love, seizes on a different part of God's love for us. Right? It's a love that's rooted in desire, that's grounded in chosen intimacy, that sees us, desires us, moves towards us, and then commits to us in covenantal, committed love. Right? It takes a hold, a different part of what it means to say that Jesus loves us, that he desires us, that he delights in us, that he chooses us. And the Bible, in a really shocking way, places this story of desire, pursuit, intimacy, and marriage at the very center of its storyline, at the very center of the story that it tells from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, is the story of God the husband seeking a bride uh, for himself. It starts in Genesis, of course. God, uh, we're told, made us in love and made us for love. Right? He made us because he loves us, and he made us that he might love us. He made us for himself so that the depth of our meaning in life, the depth of our fulfillment in life is only found as we live with him in love and in worship. 
The story takes a sad turn with our first parents' rejection of his love, right? The temptation in the garden is about far more than what fruit Adam and Eve choose to eat. It's about their trust in God's love for them, right? The serpent comes and he says, did God really say, don't eat any of the, the, tree, uh, the fruit of this tree? God knows what he, he's holding out on you. He knows what life would be if you were to eat of it, that you would be like him. And so he's withholding you good things. He doesn't really love you. You can't trust him. The story of our rejection of our creator uh, continues through there. We see it in God's choosing of his covenant people, Israel, his continued pursuit of them, revealing himself to them, and their continual turning away from him, wandering from him after other gods. One of uh, the Bible's pictures is of God when he chooses Israel, when he redeems them out of slavery in Egypt and leads them into the wilderness for 40 years. But even that was a kind of a honeymoon in which God drew near to his people. Hosea chapter 2, God says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her as in the days of her youth. And yet, if you know the Old Testament, continually it's the story of this would-be bride of God his chosen people again and again choosing to go after other gods, worshiping other uh, other would-be gods. Over and over, the prophets compare idolatry to adultery, right? That to worship other gods is for a wife to go after other husbands, to go after other lovers, right? It's one of the most consistent and penetrating depictions of, of sin in the Bible, that when we turn our back on God, it's us turning our back. Uh, on the one who loves us, on the one who gave himself to us. And so it's a choosing of unfaithfulness. And this remains true. All of our addictions, whether to drugs and alcohol or to control, comfort, success, relationships, make us unfaithful to God himself. They make us unfaithful uh, to our husband. You know, you'll never really have your heart broken over sin if you really just think of it as a breaking of the rules. Right, that God gives us rules and we're meant to keep them and when we break them, he, he gets a little bit upset. Sin will only really break your heart when you see it as a breaking of, of vows, when you see it as a, a, a breaking of a covenant, the breaking of a relationship. Right? Sin is fundamentally uh, relational. It's a turning our back on a God who loves us and who gave himself for us. And so in the Old Testament, this picture becomes clearer of God pursuing his idolatrous and adulterous people. In one of the great poetic works of the ancient world and of the Bible, the the work of the prophet Hosea, God in this lived parable calls a good man, a righteous man, to marry an adulteress, to marry a prostitute, even though he knows that again and again she will choose to walk away from him and back into the old life that she knew. And God calls Hosea to this as a way to live out a parable for his people of what it's like to be him to be married in love to an unfaithful spouse who continually runs out on him. And yet again and again, he welcomes her back. And in despite of all of Israel's wanderings, uh, it, is, it remains one of the great promises of the Bible and of the Old Testament that God would forgive and restore and finally marry once and for all his people. Isaiah chapter 62 You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no longer be called desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, 
For the Lord delights in you, and you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is what Israel lived in hope of, that in spite of their waywardness, that God would somehow make their marriage once and for all come to fruition, come to fullness, that he would forgive and move towards them. And of course, this is why, uh, this is why Christ came. This is what we celebrate uh, when we celebrate the incarnation, the birth of God as a man into human history. It's the decisive event in God's pursuit of his people. You know, a Hebrew wedding, a traditional Hebrew wedding, uh, followed a certain number of, of set steps. That it was traditional for a Hebrew groom uh, to leave his father's house, to travel some distance, and go to the house uh, of the one that he was going to become engaged to. And there to make a contract, to, be, to forge a covenant with her family and with her that he would marry her, to pay the price for her hand in marriage in the form of the bride price, the dowry, and then to leave and to, to depart from her, to go back to his house and to build a home for them. Usually this home would be built onto the side of his father's house, that that house would just expand to make room for this new family, where they would stay at least for the first portion of their life together. The gospel writers, particularly the gospel of John, are are keen to show us that the, the birth of Jesus and his life on earth takes this pattern, right? That he comes as a bridegroom to his people. He leaves his father's house to go on the longest journey that any groom has ever gone on. Uh, to meet his bride in the incarnation. And as he's born among us, he does that to, to begin to pursue his bride. That in his death, he makes a covenant and pays the price for his bride's hand in marriage, covering over her sin, paying the price for her redemption. That he then leaves and ascends to heaven to the hand of his father, where the gospel of John tells us, As Jesus comforts his disciples, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that where I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and welcome you into my presence, so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And so remember, this is the same author. The author of the Gospel of John is the same one who's now receiving this vision. The same one who heard off the the lips of Jesus, I'm going to prepare a place for you, now sees the new Jerusalem descend as a bride for her husband, sees with his own eyes uh, the consummation that he had longed for when their long engagement would finally come to an end. And Jesus and his people, Jesus and his church, Jesus and John, Jesus and us, would know the fullness of life together, the fullness of love that we were promised uh, in his first coming. And we know that this waiting uh, can, awful, can, can sometimes be very, very hard. This waiting and unrequited love, this waiting and longing, right? In this, in this world, our life with God, we know that it's real, right? There's moments where we feel its realness. There's moments in, in worship. There's moments in prayer. There's moments when you hear a word from, from the Bible where it seems to be true, and it seems to be so present to you. And yet Paul says that in this world, we see everything through a glass darkly, 
right? That, that, that we see our God through a veil and that we don't know him fully. Sometimes he seems very, very distant. Sometimes we pray and nothing seems to happen. Sometimes we go to read the Bible and we get a few sentences in and we either fall asleep or start thinking about our to-do list for the day. Sometimes we long and we go to worship in the anticipation that we'll feel something, anything, but instead he seems really distant. And what God, what, what God shows John here is that one day that veil will be removed. That one day that distance that, that lives between us will be pulled away and we'll know God as a husband knows his wife. That we'll know God in the fullness of intimacy. And so John sees this vision. This vision of the bride of the lamb, prepared, dressed in pure and spotless clothing, adorned in jewels, ready uh, for her wedding, ready for her marriage. It's the vision uh, that, that we know, we see it elsewhere in the scriptures. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, describes the work of Christ in this way. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Right, that Christ gives his life uh, in order to purchase for his bride a pure and spotless white gown. Right, that we wear as the church, we wear white at the wedding of the Lamb. And it's not because we made it to our wedding day a virgin. Right? It's not because we were spotless. It's not because we were faithful. It's not because we dressed ourselves up pretty. It's because Christ gave us his pure, spotless, unblemished righteousness. His perfect record. Ezekiel holds out the promise that God will dress us himself. That he'll adorn us with a gown, with jewels, with pure robes. So that we, so that we could come before him in pure and spotless garments, and know that heaven won't be rolling its eyes going, yeah, her in white, sure, but that heaven will celebrate because we are finally pure and spotless. And yet, if you read closely, John tells us something that can can seem a little confusing at the end of verse 8. All of 8 says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Right, it would seem to us, based on Ephesians 5 and elsewhere, that it ought to say that she adorned herself not in her righteousness, not in the righteousness of of, of the saints, but of Christ. And there's times where the scriptures do hold out that promise. But here what John is saying is that God's love for his bride actually changes her. He loves us when we're unlovable and unlovely. But his love does transform us into something lovely. That his love transforms us into something and someone beautiful. So that by the time we get here, by the time we get to the wedding feast, the white gown that seems so inappropriate and ill-fitting when given to us has started to work itself out in our lives so that we actually do start to live lives that are holy and righteous and pleasing to God. So that in the end, there is, there is a, we're dressed in white, and it's the white of Christ that he washed us and made us pure. But then it's also adorned with the, right, the goodness that he's worked in us. And notice that John says that that was, all, that was also given to her. Right? That even our righteous deeds are a gift of God's grace. Right? Even the, the love that we produce, the good things that we do, aren't us. 
but God working in us and through us to make something beautiful in us. And it's a vision so beautiful that John, in in verse 10, falls down to worship. Then I fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But he said to me, you must not do that. (laughs) Right? John is so overwhelmed and taken with the vision of what he's seen that he just worships the first thing he sees, Uh, which in this case is a messenger. Uh, It's... It's the one who's shown him the vision, the angel. And he says, no, no, don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Right? John's so overcome by the vision, overcome by the love, that he just falls down on his face and worships because he finally sees that the consummation of all of history, the consummation of all that God has done in the world, all of the suffering that he and his friends have gone through, is leading to this moment of consummation and of joy. You know, there's something about romantic love uh, in this life that both arouses and frustrates our deepest desires. Right? In some way, we know that we're made for love. We long for love. There's a reason why we, we shell out $12.50 to go see love stories and romance movies. It's a reason why Netflix keeps cranking them out. Right? That our hearts love a good love story. We know that we were made for it. We can each probably look back over our lives at moments where those promises of of what romantic love seems to offer came through, and you knew what it was to be loved, to be delighted in, and yet it always frustrates us, doesn't it? Right? There's always something between us. Even in the best marriages, there's moments uh, where you look at each other with absolute contempt, uh, where you speak to one another uh, in ways of judgment. Right? There's moments uh, where even in good marriages we feel lonely, let alone all of the bad ones, all of the broken relationships that we've been in. And here we see that all of history is moving towards a love that is only delightful and never frustrating, right? where all of our hopes find their fulfillment, where the embrace that we've longed for and lived for and waited for comes through and we feel it, and we know it. This vision promises that the life to come will deliver on all of the broken hopes of love in this life. And that's not how many of us often think of heaven, is it? Right? I think sometimes when we think of heaven, uh, it fails to arouse in us any sense of desire or anticipation or hope. Isaac Asimov, a science fiction writer, uh, wrote once that he feared heaven worse than hell. He said, whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. Right? If you think of heaven as just sitting around on clouds uh, with a harp and singing church songs, that uh, that might strike you as boring. But if you envision heaven as love's embrace, pure love, pure joy, the pure consummation of the longings of our hearts, the healing of all of the brokenness of our hearts, Well, then that can stir our hearts uh, in a way that changes the way that we live our life with God here, uh, even now. If that life is the eternal embrace of one who loves you utterly, it begins to change the way that you think about yourself in this life, and it begins to change the way that you approach God. 
You know, one of my favorite things about weddings, weddings are one of the uh, real perks of the pastoral calling. I I love doing weddings. Uh, We celebrated a wedding uh, here uh, last weekend. Betsy Branham, our former children's director, got married. And one of my favorite things to do at a wedding, in the moment uh, where the band plays or the music plays, uh, here comes the bride. And the doors open and she comes in. And everybody stands and turns to look at the bride. One of the great things about being a pastor is I'm usually standing right there with the groom, right, with a front row seat uh, as he sees his bride coming down the aisle for him. And while everybody else watches the bride, and it's hard not to, I like to look and to see the groom's face as he sees uh, his bride coming to him. It is a look uh, of pure desire and joy and anticipation her in that moment, and life together stretched out in front of him. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. Johnny Erickson Tata uh, was a woman, is a woman, uh, who was paralyzed as a teen in a diving accident, Uh, has lived most of her adult life uh, in a wheelchair. And she uh, reflects on her wedding day, and I'm going to read what she writes. She writes, I felt awkward as my girlfriend strained to shift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding gown. No amount of corseting and binding my body gave me a perfect shape. The dress just didn't fit well. Then as I was wheeling into the church, I glanced down and noticed that I'd accidentally run over the hem of my dress, leaving a greasy tire mark. My my paralyzed hands couldn't hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off the center of my lap. And my chair, though decorated for the wedding, was still a big clunky gray machine with belts and gears and ball bearings. I certainly didn't feel like the picture-perfect bride in a bridal magazine. I inched my chair closer to the last pew to catch a glimpse of Ken in front. That's her husband. And there he was, standing tall and stately in his formal attire. And I saw him looking for me, craning his neck to look up the aisle. My face flushed, and I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him. I had seen my beloved. The love in Ken's face had washed away all my feelings of unworthiness. I was his pure and perfect bride. How easy it is for us to think that we're utterly unlovely, especially to someone as lovely as Christ. But he loves us with the bright eyes of a bridegroom's love and cannot wait for the day that we are united with him forever. Johnny looks back on her wedding day, and it's so vivid and real, and she remembers the look in her husband's eyes, and she's able to bring that vision into the present to inform her life, to inform her love. We go, it goes the other way for us. We live in light of a future wedding, the future joy and delight and desire in our bridegroom's eyes for us, his longing for us, and we remember that in the future, in the present, here and now. It changes the way that we think about ourselves forever. If you really are the object of Jesus' delight, the reason that he came, born in a manger, humbling himself, the reason that he became obedient even to death on a cross for us. It changes the way you live your life. It changes the way you think of yourself. It changes the way that you live your everyday, ordinary life. Samantha Burns is a therapist Uh, and advice columnist who calls herself a millennial love expert, a title for which I have many questions. 
she tells of her practice uh, and advises other brides. She's married. She's been married for three years now. Uh, every year on her anniversary, she puts her wedding dress on for whatever it is that she and her husband are going to go do together. She tells the story that they've played mini golf in her wedding dress. They've gone to dinners and they're in her wedding dress. She's told in one interview, uh, <clears throat> she's talking about this practice of wearing her dress every anniversary. She tells how it started uh, on the night of her wedding when she realized that she just couldn't accept the idea of wearing this beautiful gown, her favorite dress, only once in her life. And so she turned to her husband uh, and declared that she'd be wearing her most beloved article of clothing every year. He thought I was joking when I first told him, she said. When he surprised me with a trip for our first anniversary, I told him to make sure I'd be able to wear my dress to whatever we were doing. He laughed, but I brought the dress along with me. So on her first anniversary, she wore her wedding dress while hitting balls on the driving range. On her third anniversary, she wore it on a sunset cruise on Boston Harbor. It was a Wednesday night, she said. So we had the dance floor to ourselves with live music. It felt like a mini wedding all over again. You know, this is a beautiful picture of our life in Christ. Life in Christ is a daily putting on of our wedding dress a daily reminding ourselves that this is who we are to him, that this, is how we, that this is how he sees us every day, right? Praying and reading your Bible, it's not having a quiet time to check a box off so that God likes you. It's a bride putting on her wedding dress again, not to see if it still fits or if she's put on too much weight or if she still looks good, but to know and to remind herself that to her groom, to her Jesus, she is always resplendent and glorious and beautiful. We remind ourselves of that every day. And in that every day, as Samantha Burns says, is a mini wedding, a rehearsal in this life of the wedding uh, that we live for and long for together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do ask that you would help us in those moments in our lives where we feel so ugly, Inside and out, uh, Lord, when the voices of shame and guilt creep into our hearts that tell us that we are unlovely and unlovable, Lord, that in those moments you would help us to live in light of your embrace, that you would help us uh, to don our, our wedding dress again, to remember, uh, Lord, that you gave your life to wash us to make us holy and blameless, and then to give us back to yourself as a bride. Lord, help us to live these days in light of that day. Help us to find uh, our joy and our delight in your delight over us. Lord, I know it's hard for us to believe. Uh, it's hard for us to believe sometimes that the good news really is true and that it really is that good. Jesus loves me, this I know that I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And so, Lord, we pray that you would massage that truth deeper and deeper into our hearts. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you will spend eternity showing us your love and drawing us into love and drawing out of us what we now see only dimly, the love of our Savior. Lord, make it real to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.
listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.